Over the past five years, poptimism has grown from this cheeky in-joke kind of among music critics to, to a very mainstream notion. But in the early 2000s, it was a demarcation point for this divide between kind of predominantly English, Australian, and, and European music aficionados and, and these new American critics who had largely come off a 10-year run of of absurd kind of sneering snobbery where we, we preferred obscure indie singles and these plodding, self-serious post-rock bands like Godspeed You, Black Emperor, and the lot. And it, it was more about its mere contrast with, with NSYNC and, and Nelly or, you know, whatever mainstream pop was saturating the marketplace than, than this music's empiric value. I mean, you can say that, like, Sugar Ross and, and a lot of these bands are, have a kind of eternal beauty to them, but just as much of the pool was, was relatively mediocre. I mean, you're not hearing people keep Tarantel alive or, or Yumebitsu or bands like this that, you know, I liked quite a bit, but the idea that they had an, you know, an authenticity and, a, and a, a seriousness and an integrity by virtue of being difficult to listen to um, is sort of hard to defend. But at the same time, the ubiquity of chart pop in those days, it bred that dichotomy and that kind of elitist thinking. And it's foolish, but when you have the stricture of physical media still controlling distribution, when you have major record companies still controlling promotion and, and defining celebrity, that was an observable uh, phenomenon. The, the, the need to retreat from that and kind of fight to champion things that, that weren't getting a fair shake because it was impossible. All the critics who were active at that time, we're all getting into our late 30s now. I, I've just turned 40 myself, and, and so we're over all of that. You know, most of us even have gone through you know, a poptimist phase of our own, embracing mainstream pop, even just as a way to kind of ridicule um, younger generations who are trying to play the same sort of elitist games, but they click on music. They don't, there's no effort, you know? And, and it's a thin justification for the elitism of indie rock in, in the 90s and even in, in the UK in, in the 80s. Um, but, but how and where and when you heard a song, that, that sort of had meaning at one point. And it, it has almost none today. So in the fall of 2012, I'm driving my kids back and forth to dance lessons, gymnastics classes. And, you know, I was constantly bombarded by this particular mainstream pop song uh, but, but one that had a lot more going for it than just filling in as part of the fabric of, of celebrity pop. And it's Locked Out of Heaven by Bruno Mars. When it was first released, Locked Out of Heaven didn't really get its hooks into a lot of critics. I mean... It was received and it was regarded, you know, sort of slightly as like a funky, raw improvement over Bruno's American Idol ballads. But there's a lot more to this song. And, and as its popularity, you know, sort of maintained and even swelled um, long after its initial release, it became this like inescapable radio smash. And critics started to have to take note of it. And, and they realized they'd sort of missed an opportunity there to flex their kind of academic muscle um, by telling people, you know, this sounds like the police. Um, and it does and it doesn't. If anything, to me, it sounds like a particular album in the police discography, Zenyatta Mandata, which is a very definitive record um, for the police, but it's also arguably their least accessible. It was written on tour, 
um, on a huge world tour that the scale of which far exceeded the, the, the success and the renown even of the police at that time. They went through the Middle East and Egypt, etc. And, and this is before every little thing she does is magic. It's before uh, Ghost in the Machine and, and long before the, the kind of, you know, huge um, crystallization of the band's, you know, sound and, and stature in synchronicity. You know, the police were never obscure at any point in their career, but, but they weren't clear-cut kind of FM radio fodder either. And by the time Zenyatta Mandata came out, they were sort of drifting. Um, they were drifting into the AOR, um, you know, album-oriented rock format. Because, you know, after Roxanne, they had had a tough time coming up with anything that kind of cutesy and digestible. Um, you know, plenty of fans who know the catalog know that there's lots of off-kilter sort of bubblegum like So Lonely, which is like the boys don't cry of, of the police catalog. It's a should have been hit, you know, that never was. crazy that that song wasn't a chart hit but you know the breakdown who knows something through it from kind of playlist um fame but so but because the police were so massive you know at one point and they're they're such an inextricable component of the history of mtv and the 1980s uh, critics tend to sort of assume that everybody knows the general history of this band and and yeah they were one of the biggest bands in the world but that was 30 years ago and and even then, there's a lot of dark, kind of funny and strange stories about the police that weren't always retold. And in fact, were, were often kind of minimized or couched by the band and their promoters. And in the intervening decades, they've completely fallen by the wayside. Nobody hearing the police for the first time in, in 2015 is going to know that, that Sting, Gordon Sumner, and Stuart Copeland, the drummer, were gigging jazz prog musicians for like years and years before the police. They were like established circuit musicians in England. And then, you know, then punk rock happens and, and Stuart Copeland, who's like 28 or so, he's very late 20s, he has this like sort of midlife crisis, this premature midlife crisis. And he wants to tap into and participate in this, you know, cultural social revolt, which is largely driven by teenagers. And the police were despised by punks and by critics because it was so obvious that they were jumping on this bandwagon, on the punk bandwagon. And, and they also were acting kind of cowardly, you know, in fear of jeopardizing their, their session careers. And, and in Stink's case, he's trying to become an actor. He is an actor. He was in Quadrophenia. He, he was ace in that film. He had booked a lot of commercials. He had landed a big role in the Sex Pistols film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, as the lead singer of the Blow Waves, or the Fabulous Blow Waves, I think they were called. Um, and so because of all this ancillary activity... And the fact that the band, you know, the police, haven't done much just yet, 
um, they wore disguises when they would play out for film, you know, or broadcast appearances. And they were kind of hedging their bets in this way. Sting pretty quickly sussed out that there wasn't a lot of gas in the punk tank. And, and he started sort of antagonizing Stuart Copeland for, for hiding and masking his musicianship and his experience as a, as a jazz drummer professionally. And this whole need he seemed to have to go through a second childhood, a kind of even more childish childhood um, than he'd been able to enjoy as a sort of military brat. And, and Stewart's taking this to an even farther degree than writing songs like, you know, The Truth It's Everybody and Born in the 50s and Be My Girl Sally and all these things, these joke songs the police did. Stewart's doing his own records as Clark Kent, uh, this ridiculous, totally self-indulgent alter ego he had going, um, where he was putting out even wonkier material than, than was on those first two police records. <laughs> So this, this actor-age conflict um, was worsened by the presence of the band's virtuoso guitarist, Andy Summers. Andy was 10 years older than Sting and Copeland. Um, in fact, he turned 40 while they were recording Synchronicity. It wouldn't matter, you know, if it weren't for the band's own obvious discomfort with their age. Um, and the fact that they were trying to participate in this faddish, novelty punk culture, you know, and they were so much older and wiser and more established. Um, so, you know, when artists are marketing themselves to win over a younger generation, a younger audience, it, it tends to not look good. But with the police, none of this matters because they wrote some of the best and most original pop music that has ever been recorded. I mean, this is one of the true few original bands, like with a capital S sound to their credit. Zenyatta Madonna was released in 1980, and it was obviously written on tour. It was full of experimental, you know, half-thoughts and jams. Uh, it is arguably their weakest record, but it is their most exploratory as well. Three of my favorite Police songs are on this record, uh, and they're very atypical compared to the rest of the band's discography. Voices Inside My Head has always been like a top three, top five Police cut for me, mostly for the, the chas. <laughs> And you have Behind My Camel, which is a, a kind of workout piece for Andy Summers and all of his new stomp boxes and whatever synthesizers were lying around in the studio. Uh, it's kind of aimless and loping, but the guitar tone is just outstanding. And then you have Shadows in the Rain. This is the definitive 
uh, kind of dub reggae tribute the police did without tipping to, to pure mimicry like they had with, you know, Beds Too Big Without You and, and a couple of the other reggae tracks. Shadows in the Rain is also the first time that Sting tries to do that whole muso-jazz thing, um, which ends up being the tenor of his entire solo career. Like, five years later, he reworked Shadows in the Rain um, to be the kind of fusion centerpiece of uh, his live sets. Shadows in the Rain! There's just a lot of cool shit on this record. You got Canary in a Coal Mine, When the World's Running Down, You Make the Best of What's Around. You know, in a lot of ways, Zenyatta Mandata is, is stronger than people remember. Uh, I love Man in a Suitcase, too. That's a fucking great song. It's like pure ska. And they, they added this, like, killer synth drone uh, when they played it in concert. So this Bruno Mars single, Locked Out of Heaven, you know, it does sound a bit like where the police were at when they were doing Zenyatta Mandata. But there's a few other songs that, that really stand out just as much um, as far as sharing kind of formative influence. The one that stood out the most to me and, and to many other critics was the romantics talking in your sleep. And, and there's another one in the ballpark, which would uh, be Saved by Zero, by The Fix. Maybe someday, by zero, I'll be more together, by and you can even point to the outfield, uh, I Don't Want to Lose Your Love, which uh, that was added to the Wikipedia page for Locked Out of Heaven. Like someone went in there and typed in, you know, critics have noted that it sounds similar to I Don't Want to Lose Your Love by The Outfield. Um, you know, I have to assume, like, The Outfield's drummer did that. But, you know, there's a more recent song, even, that you could say that Locked Out of Heaven owes a lot to. Um, Feel Good Ink by Gorillaz. Bruno Mars has this little gang of producers around him, the Smeezingtons. One of them is about his age, Ari Levine. And the other is a guy called Philip Lawrence, uh, who's in his late 30s. He's about, he's my age. Um, Bruno Mars himself, he's born in 1985, so he's not around when Zenyatta Mandata comes out. In fact, the police have broken up by the time Bruno Mars is born. And don't take that the wrong way. I'm not saying like he's thoughtlessly stealing from the past or he's not allowed to play with the police as an inspiration. I'm saying that this song is so good and so forensically in line with the music that I've just kind of run through and the whole history of early 80s pop the nuance of it, it, it captures way too much for someone who wasn't alive at that time. 
Bruno's people have seized on the police comparison as a way to get second stage press uh, while Locked Out of Heaven continues to chart. And that they're having him run around and broadcast his love of the police. Like, hell yeah, it sounds like the police. I love the police. Every time you go into a club and you hear the police, people go fucking crazy. I love the police. Police are awesome. The police, police, police. They're classic. And, you know, this gives him kind of some measure of musical sophistication compared to, you know, other celebrity pop stars who are just, you know, expounding on their Twitter wars or whatever. But, you know, to find out that the guy who was really behind this single wasn't Bruno Mars or his pals in the Smeezingtons, it was Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson had already gutted me with all of his work with Amy Winehouse and then, then the covers of the Charlatans and the Smiths and this devastating Culture Club tribute, Somebody to Love Me, which um, I did an entire two-part video about uh, for how, you know, beautifully it, it just, you know, reincarnated Boy George and the Culture Club moment. This was all, like, deeply impressive stuff to me. Uh, but, but Ronson is not really taken very seriously by critics because he's basically an aristocrat. But, you know, wagging the finger of, you know, starving art purity, uh, particularly in this case, is a huge mistake because almost all pop musicians come from one extreme or the other, you know, financially. They're either poor or they're loaded. They're very rarely middle-class people who working class people who who cut like you know a couple of tracks in their bedroom in their spare time and then made it and jumped ship and you know now they're just celebrities most of the people who get to that level they have literally nothing to lose in pursuing pop music to the exclusion of financial or social stability they're either so rich that they can afford to be out seven nights a week or so poor that they don't have a job to show up for the thing for me with Ronson is that he's delivering on that privilege. He, he's used his privilege to educate himself and to become an aesthete, like an archon of pop, and, and to make music that reflects the level of sophistication and the depth of understanding that he enjoys with respect to this art form. And, and why should we as music fans be preferentially excited about, like, NYU sophomores who just bought a reverb pedal and, you know, they're jangling along in ADG all fucking day with chorus teardrop leads, you know, that sound like The Cure and O Positive, you know, with their bangs all, you know, frosted over their eyes or whatever. This is, that's just as preconceived as hair metal was in the 80s. We're paying attention to the packaging, you know, we're championing attitude and looks when it's paired to the most boring shit going. You know, fuzz pop indie, it's fine socially, but critically, there's really no need for a lot of extended debate. It's social music. It's music that creates social environments and, and social tiers that help you have fun and go out and get seen and get loaded and get laid. But, but when somebody at the highest levels of pop music, with the highest levels of access, uses that privilege to create something so rich and so resonant, that, that it's recognizable at par emotionally and historically with the music of the past that it's paying tribute to, that is such a fucking great trick. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 